0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from PwC. Pairing the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge, reimagine operations, fuel innovation, and detect risks. Human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation from PwC.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. When your skin glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow-up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's sellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion, to provide results you can feel. Glow from the inside out with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com.
2: Hey, it's Guy here. So the era of open source technology has led to countless innovations in programming and design and in robotics. It's changed how we build, collaborate, even govern. But when does open source work to its fullest potential and when does it cause chaos? This episode is called Open Source World and it originally aired in October of 2015. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So here's a story. It starts in 1989. And it's about how the internet, as we know it, almost didn't exist.
4: You didn't have really the words anyway. People didn't have click and web page. This is
2: Tim Berners-Lee.
4: So I could show them clicking on a link. And they would say, "So a big deal. I've got links on my online documentation. But they'd all be within the same CD-ROM. And you'd say, well, imagine if that link could have gone anywhere in the world to any document anywhere in the world. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, sure. So they couldn't couldn't imagine that.
2: Uh, By the way, Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web,
1: which is different from... The Internet. The iNet. The net. You've heard of it. But what is it?
2: By 1989, the Internet had already been around for about two decades.
1: Think of the Internet as a network
2: of communication networks. Email existed, but not much else. And there wasn't a universal way for computers to access information on other computers. So cut to Tim, who was getting really tired of this problem. He was a programmer at the time with CERN, the European physics lab.
4: The frustration that, you know what, actually... Every time I get a piece of paper on my desk, there was a disk somewhere is going round and round with that file on it. Yeah. So there was this realization that life could be that it would be very, very cool if in fact all of these documents appeared to be part of one big interconnected mesh.
2: So Tim and some colleagues at CERN went to work building a system that would do that that would make office life easier and data sharing on the internet possible for anyone. And they called it the World Wide Web. But around the same time, again, this is the early 90s, a similar system was already gaining in popularity. And that system was called Gopher.
1: In Gopher space, as it's called, you literally burrow through hierarchies of menus with increasing specificity until you reach your level of interest.
2: This is some of the only audio we could find Gopher is
1: easy to navigate and easy to
2: browse. that even proves Gopher was ever a thing. It's a U.S. government training video about the Internet from the early 90s.
4: Gopher was a campus-wide information system from the University of Minnesota.
1: Watch as we burrow through the BTS Gopher site.
2: In the early 90s, Gopher was actually taking off faster Faster. than the World Wide Web. If you looked at the traffic on the Internet. the University of Minnesota announced... Just in some cases,
4: if you were running the server, not the client, um, then maybe just a very, very small fee.
2: The university wanted to charge people to use its system to navigate the internet. And by charging money, the university had signaled that Gopher would be proprietary, a completely closed system. And this was fundamentally different from Tim's idea for the World Wide Web. The crucial thing about The World Wide
4: Web actually is the URLs. So for the thing to work, anybody anywhere who ran a computer that had some information which should be available to other people should make up one of these URLs for each document. That is a massive ask. You can't ask that and also ask other things. You can't say, you must use my particular type of computer. You can't say, you must use my particular browser. You can't say, and you must pay me 0.0001 cents per click when everybody clicks on it.
2: Which is why, the moment the University of Minnesota announced it would charge money for Gopher,
4: at that point, the gopher traffic on the Internet dropped off. Wow. People came to me and said, Tim, what is the story with the web? Can we, you know, is this going to happen? To, is CERN going to do this?
2: They wanted to know, as the web was coming into wider use, what assurances did they have that Tim wouldn't do the same thing with the web as the University of Minnesota did with gopher? So a few weeks later, Tim convinced his bosses at CERN to draft an official announcement. It was signed on April 30th, 1993. And the crucial part reads... CERN relinquishes all intellectual property rights to this code for anyone to
4: use. We will not charge royalties for this, basically. It will be royalty-free.
2: You could have decided that you were going to just be proprietary. This is going to make you an incredible fortune, and that was that. And you decided not to do that. Well, you're making a bit of an assumption there. Hmm.
4: You're making the assumption that if I'd have turned around and said, "I want the patents on this, uh, and I'll see you later," then you're making the assumption that then it would have taken off to be the huge thing that it is now. Yeah. But that's that's oh, that's obviously a wrong <gasps> assumption. There were lots and lots and lots of people doing really cool things on the internet. Yeah. If it hadn't been open, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have taken off. That's the idea.
2: Today. We have a phrase for this idea. The idea that creating things freely and in the open sometimes leads to results you never thought possible. And we call it open source.
4: And it has to be open. If it hadn't been open, it would have been a walled garden. And the moment you start a walled garden, people look at it and they say, oh, that looks lucrative. We can do that better. And we would have had all these independent systems, and those programs wouldn't work together. You wouldn't have been able to follow a link from one to the other. So basically, the web would never—I don't think it would have got the critical mass.
2: On the show today, TED speakers put the idea of open source to work in the worlds of technology, design, robotics, and democracy. And they make the case for why an open source world is a better world. By the way, you can see all of Tim Berners-Lee's talks on the beginnings of the World Wide Web at TED.com. Okay, so when I I, uh, hear this term open source, I'm thinking about what Tim Berners-Lee was just describing, like the 90s and the web, but this goes way back, right? Well, so this is one of the things that often happens with any new
5: pattern. It's almost never a completely new effect. It's some old small
2: pattern now writ large and fast. This is Clay Shirky. He studies how we interact online. And the idea behind open source, it didn't actually start in the tech world. It dates back to the 17th century in England.
5: In the early history of the printing press, you start getting magazines and newspapers and you start getting people really thinking of print as a way that a group can communicate with each other.
2: Clay picks up the rest of the story from the TED stage. This is uh, the cover of Philosophical Transactions, the first scientific
5: journal ever published in English in the middle of the 1600s. And it was created by a group of people who had been calling themselves the Invisible College, a group of natural philosophers who only later would call themselves scientists. And they wanted to improve the way natural philosophers argued with each other. And they needed to do two things for this. They needed openness, they needed to create a norm which said when you do an experiment, you have to publish not just your claims, but how you did the experiment. If you don't tell us how you did it, we won't trust you. But the other thing they needed was speed. They had to quickly synchronize what other natural philosophers knew, otherwise you couldn't get the right kind of argument going. The printing press was clearly the right medium for this, but the book was the wrong tool, it was too slow. And so they invented the scientific journal as a way of synchronizing the argument across the community of natural scientists.
2: Now, this was a huge shift because here's how things worked before. In the 1600s, if you wanted to be, say, an alchemist, which is an early chemist, you couldn't just pick up a book and figure out how. You had to find an actual alchemist and convince him to take you on as his apprentice. And you would basically learn only what that alchemist already knew. And they were really secretive, right? I mean people were not sharing information and results and data. Uh, right. So the alchemists were
5: were not only not sharing data like maybe they forgot. They were very explicitly not sharing data as a cultural norm. So Why did these guys stop working like this? They decided to stop because they weren't making much progress. They thought they would make more progress by talking to each other. And as the cost of printing and the press fell, suddenly there was this other model where you could say, you know, we could share things with people dozens or hundreds of miles away. And all of a sudden, everybody would know the same thing at the same time. Hmm. And so they switched the cultural norms to say, we're all in this together, and we will all together make more progress than
2: if we had just hidden our results. Wow. So, I mean, they basically, uh, you know, invented open source? Yeah. So they
5: were one of the first groups to say, we have this new medium. Anybody can join, and there is no center. And we're
2: changing what we're doing because of it. Which brings us back to the web and how open source moved from natural philosophy to the world of technology. So remember that in the early 90s, Tim Berners-Lee was inventing the World Wide Web using an open source model. And at that time, he was an outlier in the tech world. Most major advances in tech weren't coming from some big collaborative process without a central authority. They were coming from the top down. And a big reason why is because of programming. And programming is complicated. Here's more from Clay's TED Talk.
5: Programming is a three-way relationship between a programmer, some source code, and the computer it's meant to run on. But computers are such famously inflexible interpreters of instructions that it's extraordinarily difficult to write out a set of instructions that the computer knows how to execute. And that's if one person is writing it. Once you get more than one person writing it, it's very easy for any two programmers to overwrite each other's work if they're working on the same file, or to send incompatible instructions that simply causes the computer to choke. And this problem grows larger the more programmers are involved. To a first approximation, The problem of managing a large software project is the problem of keeping this social chaos at bay. Now, for decades, there has been a canonical solution to this problem, which is to use something called a version control system. And a version control system does what it says on the tin. It provides a canonical copy of the software on a server somewhere. The only programmers who can change it are people who've specifically been given permission to access it and they're only allowed to access the subsection of it that they have permission to change. And when people draw diagrams of version control systems, they look like org charts. And you don't have to squint very hard to see the political ramifications of a system like this. This is feudalism. One owner, many workers. Now, that's fine for the commercial software industry. It really is Microsoft's office. It's Adobe's Photoshop. The corporation owns the software. The programmers come and go. But there was one programmer who decided that this wasn't the way
2: to work. Who that programmer was and his impact on you, me, and the rest of the world? In a moment, I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR.
2: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about open source. And just before the break, we were hearing from Clay Shirky about the early days of the open source movement, and one programmer in particular. His name is Linus Torvalds. And at age 22, Linus decided to create a truly open source operating system, which he called Linux. Open source software, the core promise of the open source license
5: is that everybody should have access to all the source code all the time. But of course, this creates the very threat of chaos you have to forestall in order to get anything working. So most open source projects just held their noses and adopted the feudal management system. But Torvalds said, no, I'm not going to do that. His point of view on this was very clear. When you adopt a tool, you also adopt the management philosophy embedded in that tool. And he wasn't going to adopt anything that didn't work the way the Linux community worked. This is a tremendously complicated process. This is a tremendously complicated program. And yet Torvalds ran this not with automated tools but out of his email box. People would literally mail him changes that they'd agreed on, and he would merge them by hand. Linus was the first person to consciously use the entire world as his potential talent pool. Because by that point, this is the early 1990s. Pretty much anyone who had the technical skills needed to contribute to an operating system was also online. Yeah, yeah. so put this in the context. I mean, how big of a deal was this? So what is really extraordinary about Linux, you know, people think of it as a kind of geek operating system for some desktops and laptops. But what people don't realize is... It's the background operating system of every Kindle and Nook in existence. It's the background operating system of every Android phone in existence. And almost the entirety of what we call the cloud. Linux has been the thing that enabled those subsequent
2: tools and services to be built. And that happened because he basically said, hey, this is what I'm doing. You want to check it out? Here's everything that I'm doing. Nothing's a secret.
5: It's the nothing's a secret part because at every moment, and there are, you know, you see this pattern over and over again. When Wi-Fi router manufacturers said we're going to need an operating system to run on this thing, they could write their own and own it and nobody could copy it and they wouldn't have to release the source code. But Linux was just sitting there and it was free. So they adopt it and routers become a tool that people can write new things on top of. When the people making the Kindle said, you know, we could write a brand new operating system to run eBooks and it won't work well till the third version, or we, Linux is just sitting there and it's free. And at every moment... It does just enough of what people have wanted it to do that
2: it was worth it to grab it and extend it rather than writing something from scratch. When when something is open source, is the result always better? No, my God, no. (laughs) I mean, you know, we know many cases where the results are almost
5: never better. You know, the the famous example of open source novels, the disastrous wiki op-ed that the LA Times tried. But then there are also trade-offs where you have to say this product is better in one way but worse in another way. So anyone who's used an Android phone and an iPhone is looking at a phone that has been developed on more open source and more closed source models. Apple famously obsessively secretive, famously obsessive about the design of the icons and the uniformity of the behavior of the phone. The pleasure of that phone is quite extraordinary. Android is just a little clunkier. It's more inconsistent, but (laughs) number one, Android phones are much cheaper which means that it is Android and not the iPhone that's bringing the smartphone revolution to the masses, right? It is Android that is responsible for a billion people having access to some sort of smartphone right now. So if your choice is no smartphone at all or an Android, then the open source world has really made your life considerably better. So the key thing I think to understand is where open source works, it tends to spread not because it's always perfect, but because it's never so bad that you wouldn't get an advantage from picking it up. Again, this is why Linux got picked up for so many things. Not that it was ever perfect for eBooks or the cloud or Android phones or any of the rest of it, but because it was cheap enough and good enough that it gave people a boost if they adopted it.
2: Clay Shirky writes and teaches about the internet and society. You can watch all of his talks at TED.com. So as we've been hearing from Tim Berners-Lee and Clay Shirky, the open source movement came from the tech world, and it's still largely a tech-based concept. But what if you could take the principles of open source and push them out beyond technology?
6: What really appeals to me about the philosophy of open source is it's allowing for answers to appear in places that you could have never imagined. This
2: is Pia Mancini. She's a democracy activist from Argentina.
6: I think it's the potential of open source, the ability of working in a way that you'll run into untapped potential all the time.
2: And Pia wants to tap that potential in our democracies to bring the open source revolution to government, because the whole system, she says, is due for an upgrade. Here's Pia on the TED stage.
6: Let's have a look at some of the characteristics of this system. First of all, the few make daily decisions in name of the many, and the many get to vote once every couple of years. On the second place, the costs of participating in the system are incredibly high. You either have to have a fair bit of money and influence, or you have to devote your entire life to politics. You have to become a party member and slowly start working up the ranks until maybe one day you'll get to sit at a table where the decision is being made. And last but not least, the language of the system is incredibly cryptic. It's done for lawyers, by lawyers and no one else can understand. So, it's a system where we can choose authorities, but we are completely left out on how those authorities reach their decisions. Our political system remains the same for the past 200 years, and expects us to be contented with being simply passive recipients of a monologue.
2: So a few years ago, Pia and some of her activist friends came up with an idea to solve this problem, the problem that democracy is really hard to participate in. And they got this idea while they were on a train in Buenos Aires.
6: I remember we were in the in the subway, in the tube, and everyone is looking at their phones and playing Candy Crush or Angry Birds or something like that.
2: Pia and her friends wondered, what if instead of playing iPhone games when we have a free moment, what if... We could use those moments to contribute to our democracy. And they answered that question by inventing an app. They called it Democracy OS.
6: So what we did was start with one idea, asking citizens to participate in voting and having someone inside Congress voting according to what citizens decided on this online platform. But what we wanted to do with that was to push the boundaries of what was perceived as possible and doable.
2: Okay, so so right now you've got a beta of this, um, but can you explain how it works? Like, I, I would just pull up on my iPhone and I would scroll through and
0: Alaska, new wilderness protection, in Arctic refuge, and
2: like look at all the different issues being debated. Exactly.
0: Detroit Water Affordability Bill.
2: By the way, this is an actual bill that's been debated on
6: Pia's app. In this issue in particular, I'd like to vote for it myself because I'm very informed about all the complexities of this issue. There is a space for reading exactly the bill that's going to be enacted or that it's been put forward.
0: The plan caps your utility payment at 2.5 percent.
6: And then there's a space to debate.
0: Detroit is in urgent need of water affordability measures.
6: Thousands have already been shut off. It's time to.
0: Water should be paid for through general taxation and made available to all citizens. And then you vote. Yes. Yes. No. Or
6: you want to abstain. And so at the end of that process, you'll have a decision being made.
2: So in theory, you could stay engaged with issues on your way to work. You could weigh in on the construction of a local park while waiting for coffee. You could talk about a proposed tax increase while you're at the grocery store. Ideally, Pia wants elected officials to vote the way their constituents vote on the app. So she reached out to some politicians in Buenos Aires, where she lived.
6: We said, look, here you have a platform that you can use to build a two-way conversation with your constituencies. And yes, we failed. We failed big time. We were, you know, sent to play outside like little kids. Um, Amongst other things, we were called naive And I must be honest, I think in hindsight we were. Because the challenges that we face, they're not technological, they're cultural. So it suddenly became a bit obvious that if we wanted to move forward with this idea, we needed to do it ourselves. And so we took quite a leap of faith, and in August last year, we funded our own political party, El Partido de la Red, or the NET party in the city of Buenos Aires. And taking an even bigger leap of faith, we ran for elections on October last year with this idea. If we want to sit in Congress, our candidates, our representatives were always going to vote according to what citizens decided on democracy is. It was a very, very bold move for a two month old party in the city of Buenos Aires, but it got attention We got 22,000 votes, that's 1.2% of the votes, and we came in second for the local options. So even if that wasn't enough to win a seat in Congress, it was enough for us to become part of the conversation.
2: Now, of course, Democracy OS is not a perfect idea. If you don't have a critical mass of people using the app, you basically hand over power to the small group that does use it, and then the other problem is that every little vote becomes like a referendum, which in some ways makes democracy less functional. And then there's the issue of secrecy. Like an article of faith in most democracies is the secret ballot, hmm. the right to go into a closed booth and secretly make your decision, and uh, and then walk out. And I wonder if in a sort of um paradoxical way by being so open um you actually create a slightly less free space that that you know mm. the less likely it is that we will say or do what we really want
6: yeah no, it's it's look it's an extremely valid point and i think it's worth iterating and prototyping every possible sort of scenario and and trying out different arrangements there's um a Korean philosopher, and he wrote this little book called the Transparent Society. And what he says is that we are so in love with transparency and the idea of you know, everything being out in the open that we forgot how to trust. Because in order to trust, you need to have something undercover, right? Because if everything is out there, what's there to trust? But I must say that in our experience, also the anonymity of uh, certain spaces even more online produce a fair amount of, of trolling and hate speech that hides behind those avatars or those fake names. So I think it's finding a way of striking a balance.
2: Do you see open source democracy as fundamentally changing the nature of democracy or or just improving it?
6: I think fundamentally changing it. And the, the reason is because of the existence of the internet. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, obviously, but the impact that I think the internet has is comparable to the impact that the printing press had. And those changes happen when certain barriers are put in place or are lowered. And what the internet did for us was it lowered a barrier extremely Quickly for us, that was the access to information and the access to being able to express ourselves on a regular basis.
2: Pia Mancini is the co founder of the Net Party and one of the developers behind the Democracy OS app. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, open source, how sharing ideas is changing the way we live. So how often do you walk into a building, not, not a fancy building, just an ordinary, you know, normal building? How often do you walk in and slow down, really just look at all the things around you? That's what Alistair Parvin does all the time. He's a designer.
7: What I'm really interested in is the background stuff, the stuff people take for granted. So I kind of, I find myself walking into a hotel room and looking at the plug sockets and going, that's interesting. Why are the plug sockets here different than somewhere else? How did that come about?
2: Do you know what I can't get? I can't get why hotels don't have plug sockets next to the bed. They have (laughs) alarm clocks. They have alarm clocks. And how many times have you unplugged the alarm clock to plug your iPhone plug in there? I know, right? Right. And the reason
7: why that is because what we've always done is we've separated design from the process of making, which in turn is separated from the process of use. Ultimately, you've got to put power into the hands of the person who's going to use the thing.
2: And Alistair says when that doesn't happen, when the designer and the maker and the user are all in different places, not talking to each other, you get designs that don't work. You get ugly buildings that nobody likes or schools that look like prisons, homes and apartment buildings that don't make sense for the people who live in them. And part of the reason for this, says Alistair, is that architecture and design are so centralized. They're anything but open.
7: And there is this kind of myth of the hero individual architect, this kind of genius who produces a sketch and then throws it over a balcony and it just somehow happens into the world. Mm. And I guess locked into that is this idea that, well, we know best, where design and development is something done to people, not done by people.
2: Yeah. I mean, you look at most big cities and it's skyscrapers and Mm. huge housing projects and big box stores. And that was just kind of put out there. And we just kind of accept it. Yeah. And actually, we
7: all believe in the idea of democracy, right? And so the irony was that really since the Industrial Revolution, we've been bought into these big systems of design and development that were incredibly actually undemocratic. And suddenly, we're moving into a world where potentially that might not be true. Alistair
2: picks up that idea from the TED stage.
7: So the challenge we face is how are we going to build the tools, the infrastructure and the institutions for architecture's social economy? And that began with open source software. And over the last few years, it's been moving into the physical world with open source hardware, which are freely shared blueprints that anyone can download and make for themselves. And we were fascinated by what that might mean for architecture. So about a year and a half ago, we started working on a project called WikiHouse. And WikiHouse is an open source construction system. And the idea is to make it possible for anyone to go online, access a freely shared library of 3D models, which they can download and adapt. And almost at the click of a switch, they can generate a set of cutting files which allow them, in effect, to print out the parts from the house using a CNC machine, which is like a large printer that can cut sheets of plywood. And the parts are all numbered. And basically, what you end up with is a really big IKEA kit. (laughs) And it goes together without any bolts. It uses wedge and peg connections. And even the mallets to make it can be provided on the cutting sheets as well. And a team of about two or three people working together can build this. They don't need any traditional construction skills. They don't need a huge array of power tools or anything like that. And what you end up with is just the basic chassis of a house, onto which you can then apply systems like windows and cladding and insulation and services based on what's cheap and what's available. Of course, the house is never finished. With the CNC machine, you can make new parts for it over its life,
2: or even use it to make the house next door. So how could WikiHouse change the way we think about design? Alistair Parvin returns in just a minute to explain. I'm Guy Raz, our show today, open source, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code RADIOHOUR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service Destination-focused dining and cultural enrichment on board and on shore, and every Viking voyage is all inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at WaltonFamilyFoundation.org.
2: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, open source, how sharing ideas in the open can change the way we live. And we were just hearing from Alistair Parvin. He's a designer who co-founded something called WikiHouse. And WikiHouse helps users build a simple house in just a few days anywhere in the world. And when people really start to do this, Alistair says it will totally upend the way we think about our homes and offices.
7: When an architect is just kind of producing 100 houses in a week, uh, they don't get to pay attention to every small little detail. Whereas the person lives there lives there for years and weeks and months, and so they'll tweak the house and they will change it and they will learn how to use it. So that's one of the interesting things about open source design is that you can almost think of it as a way of downloading a piece of design that already has embedded within it thousands of hours worth of attention.
2: Wow. Ultimately, the idea is that you want everybody to have power in designing where they live, how their communities are designed, like that that this shouldn't just be something that is handed to them, but that everybody has a chance to kind of participate in. Yeah. There's this fantastic quote, which we think is
7: From John Maynard Keynes, it's this idea of it's easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits, and that's really funny because on one level it's so obviously true, but at the same time it's not how our whole industrial economy works. Almost our entire 20th century industrial economy was based around almost the exact opposite idea, which is shipping around materials and, and products. But the moment you could email a recipe to the other side of the world and then fabricate it and replicate it in a tiny workshop or a garage to an extraordinarily high degree of precision, open source became something that could move from the world of code into the world of physical things. We and others have built a few prototypes around the world now and some really interesting lessons here. One of them is that it's always incredibly sociable. People get confused between construction work and having fun. But the principles of openness go right down into the really mundane, physical details, like never designing a piece that can't be lifted up. Or when you're designing a piece, make sure you either can't put it in the wrong way around, or if you do, it doesn't matter because it's symmetrical. Probably the principle which runs deepest with us is the principle set out by Linus Torvalds, the open source pioneer, which was that idea of be lazy like a fox. Don't reinvent the wheel every time. Take what already works and adapt it for your own needs. We're moving into this future where the factory is everywhere. And increasingly, that means that the design team is everyone. That really is an industrial revolution. When we think that, the major ideological conflicts that we inherited were all based around this question of who should control the means of production. And these technologies are coming back with a solution. Actually,
2: maybe no one. All of us. So this idea right now, you've got all these like designers and people coming in and exchanging ideas and thoughts. And is that unusual? I mean, are designers proprietary normally? Or are they kind of like, yeah, let's, let's sort of like I'll t- tell you exactly what I'm thinking here. It, it's, this is really
7: interesting because designers and architects in particular are really taught to think that they are proprietary. But actually, the, the strange thing is it's not true. And actually, it's never been true. Architecture has always been a big copy and paste function. Why do we think that some of our big grand buildings of the state are neoclassical buildings? They're basically copies of, you know, ancient Greek and ancient Roman architecture. So everything in architecture is a copy. But the problem is that actually we've been copying really inefficiently. Like we're really bad at copying. Uh, Effectively, architects are resolving the same problems again and again and again. But the moment you open source thing, open source is another way of saying that once solved by
2: someone, no problem ever needs to be solved twice. Do you know, uh, we open source the playground in my neighborhood and what normally would have taken three months took uh, two years <laughs> because it's chaotic because everybody had a say. Everybody was involved with it. You know, So it's also like mm. – Right. It's also a little messy sometimes.
7: I think this also comes down to, your, I guess, the way that we understand open source. So open source isn't the same as, for example, crowdsourcing ideas. It's not about finding a consensus. It's about giving everybody opportunity. Right. Actually, the irony is that one of the reasons why open source is such a successful form of collaboration is that actually it's a form of collaboration that, that requires the least interaction between the collaborators. Like what you're actually doing when you open source something is bundling a piece of knowledge in such a way that somebody else thousands of miles away who you've never met and possibly will never even talk to can take it and find it useful straight away. Hmm. So there's this paradox because one of the things that makes open source work is that actually it doesn't require us to collaborate. We're aware that WikiHouse is a very, very small answer, but it's a small answer to a really, really big question, which is that globally right now, the fastest-growing cities are not skyscraper cities. They're self-made cities in one form or another. So if we're serious about problems like climate change, urbanization, and health. Actually, our existing development models aren't going to do it. How extraordinary would it be, though, if collectively we were to develop solutions not just to the problem of structure that we've been working on, but to infrastructure problems like solar-powered air conditioning, off-grid energy, off-grid sanitation, and to put them all into a commons where they're owned by everyone, a kind of Wikipedia for stuff. How much would that change the rules? And I think the technology is on our side. If design's great project in the 20th century was the democratization of consumption, that was Henry Ford, Levittown, Coca Cola, IKEA, I think design's great project in the 21st century is the democratization of production. And when it comes to architecture in cities, that really matters.
2: Thank you very much. Designer Alistair Parvin, he's the co-founder of WikiHouse. And as you heard him say earlier, people have built hundreds of prototypes around the world. You can find Alistair's entire talk at TED.com. Our show today, Open Source, how universal access to an idea can lead to things and places we never thought possible. I'd
8: never been inside of a cave at all before this. And they're really, really
2: stark. This is David Lang. And for eight months, he and some friends had been preparing to explore this one cave. It's about six hours north of San Francisco. And there's no, like, no one lives around there? There's just like, it's like a place on the map?
8: It's a, uh, that's a very good way to describe it. It's a place on a map, and that's about all we had was a map.
2: This was back in 2012, but what brought David to that cave? That story began years earlier. David had moved to L.A. from the Midwest to follow his dream of sailing around the world. Even though he'd never even been on a sailboat before.
8: But I just had this idea that this is something I wanted to do. So I drove out to California, begged my way into this job with this sailing school, learned how to sail, and ended up teaching sailing lessons in doing sailing trips around the world. It was an exciting four years uh, after
2: college. That's cool. So you really know how to sail now? I do. I I know how to sail. I've lived on a boat. The point is, David was never the kind of guy who was, you know, afraid to knock on doors and say, hey, you know, I don't know how to do this, but I want to. Help me out. So a couple years after that, he was still living in L.A., David met a guy named Eric Stackpole. And Eric was also looking for some help.
8: And when I met Eric, The first thing that came out of his mouth was this story of this cave. What do you remember about the story? So the story dated back to the gold rush. The story was that there was two Native American men who had robbed this gold mining operation, and they had made off with about 100 pounds of gold, so a lot of gold. Wow. And they were fleeing into the mountains, and the sheriff's posse was on the trail, and they threw... The gold into this underwater cave so, so it wouldn't weigh them down, so they could get away faster. They ended up getting caught, and the sheriff asked them where they put the gold, and they said
2: they hid it in the Hall City cave. David was instantly in. They were going to find that gold in the Hall City cave, but they had no idea where it was or how to get there. So they
8: just Googled it. And then we found this story from this treasure hunter online Uh who had found this cave Hmm. and had tried to get to the bottom and had almost died and had said, I'm never going back to that cave. But Eric and David did go to that cave. And sure enough, you go to the back of this limestone cave and there's this puddle of water and you shine a light and it just goes down, 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 down and you can't see the bottom of it.
2: So there could be like 100 pounds of gold down there uh, underwater and, and Eric is like... I want to find it. He says he's going to find it, but
8: more importantly, he's going to make this tool to go and find it.
2: David would spend the next eight months working with Eric to build that tool. And the tool was an ROV, a remote-operated vehicle. These are not new. They're used by oil and gas companies for exploration and construction underwater. But those ROVs cost tens of thousands of dollars. And David and Eric were trying to build one in a garage out of hardware store parts as David explained on the TED stage.
8: So Eric had an initial design idea for a robot, but we didn't have all the parts figured out. So we did what anybody would do in our situation. We asked the Internet for help. More specifically, we created this website, openROV.com, and shared our intentions and our plans. For the first few months, it was just Eric and I talking back to each other on the forums. But pretty soon, we started to get feedback from makers and hobbyists, and then actually professional ocean engineers who, you know, had some suggestions for what we should
2: do. But you knew nothing about, like, computers or, I, I guess... Electronic, you, electronics, software. No, software. I was not not Like soldering wrong. irons.
8: Yeah, and I think there's a special magic to not knowing what you're doing and being honest about
2: that. What happened when David and his friend simply asked for help? was that they didn't just hear from people with great ideas. It was people who had actually
8: tried something out. They said, hey, I just tried this out in my pool or in the ocean near where I live, and it worked. Hmm. It was better than just getting ideas. It was getting
2: solutions. And so, after eight months of tinkering on their underwater robot in a garage, prototype after prototype after prototype.
8: It just reached this point where the only thing left to do was to go.
2: Where are we right now?
8: Right now we're in the Hall City Cave, um, kind of near Redding, California. Um, It's a cave way up in the Trinity Alps.
2: And so so on their 21st prototype... Um, That
8: means I've built 20 ROVs before this, um, perfecting the design almost every time.
2: David and Um, what had become a team of friends went back to the Hall City Cave and put their little underwater robot... Like the size of a toaster oven, I would say. ...equipped with a couple of lights and a small camera, tethered to a 100-foot cable... ...was really this... ...into the water
8: moment of pride because it wasn't just that we were exploring the unknown but we were going there with this tool that we had built
2: In fact that day David and his friends almost forgot about the gold and why they were there in the first place because what was even more exciting as the robot moved through the water toward an opening in the rock that would take them successfully into the cave itself was that because of all the people who had helped them get there, they felt like part of something bigger.
8: Yeah, so we send it down, and everyone is kind of collectively holding their breath. It's a very quiet moment where anything can happen.
0: Slow ascent.
4: you're going
2: through.
8: That is so cool. All right, I'm making it to send.
2: Okay, spoiler alert here, because David and his partners did not find any gold in that cave. But the open source model they'd used to get there left them with a question, a question they would never have been able to ask if they hadn't had help from thousands of people all over the world.
8: What if there were thousands of these devices and that anybody could you know, just get online or go and meet people and get sucked into one of these adventures? So about that time, our little expedition became quite a story and it got picked up in the New York Times and we were pretty much just overwhelmed with interest from people who wanted a kit that they could build this RV themselves. So we decided to put the project on Kickstarter and when we did, we raised our funding goal in about two hours and all of a sudden had this money to make these kits. But then we had to learn how to make them. I mean, we had to learn small batch manufacturing. So we quickly learned that our garage was not big enough to hold our growing operation. But we were able to do it. We got all the kits made. Thanks a lot to TechShop, which was a big help to us. And we shipped these kits all over the world. But we're still publishing all the designs online, encouraging anyone to build these themselves. That's the only way that we could have done this. It's by being open source we've created this distributed R&D network. And we're moving faster than any venture-backed counterpart. But the actual robot is really only half the story. The real potential, the long-term potential, is with this community of DIY ocean explorers that are forming all over the globe. What can we discover when there's thousands of these devices roaming the seas?
2: David Lang and his company, OpenROV, have sold thousands of their open-source ROVs to people all over the world. These things can dive over 300 feet, they shoot high-quality video, and they only cost about 900 bucks, which is a fraction of their commercial counterparts. And David says, who knows what they could find on a planet that is 70% water?
8: To give you an example, there are about 200 shipwrecks in the San Francisco Bay that have not been discovered. Huh. I mean, we've gone off several times and we go to and look at old maps and, and read old documents at historical societies and try and figure out where some of these shipwrecks are. But to go out in the boat and to know that we're looking for this piece of history that no one else has been able to find, that's a feeling that's... Oh, it just gets me excited. I
2: mean, we're almost in some ways we're like going back to that age of discovery where like anybody could be a scientist or an explorer or an astronomer because they just went out and did it. And now like the tools are available to people and they're pretty cheap. I like that.
8: I think you're right. I think it is this new age of discovery. You have to realize, though, that, you know, we've been doing this now for four years and I tell I still tell this story once in a while of how we got started and the search for gold and Kickstarter and the whole story. And I can't help but giggle when I tell it because it still seems so unbelievable. And the best part about it is that it's not just ours, it's all of these people that are a part of it. And so I I always talk about this: that we've created this dream but it's a collective dream that we're all all participating in, that we're all working on together.
2: David Lang runs OpenROV.com. They recently launched a crowdfunded campaign to build a new version of the robot. They needed about $50,000 to start. They raised almost three quarters of a million. You can see David's short talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week, Open Source. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkinpour with help from Daniel Shukin and Jalisa Jones. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. We love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, send us an email at tedradiohour at npr.org. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at tedradiohour. Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour
1: from NPR. Will you help me? Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, solve food for work. From ordering online for meetings and team lunches to managing food spend for your whole organization, Easy Cater can help you simplify your corporate catering needs. Over 100,000 restaurants nationwide, plus budgeting tools and payment by invoice. Learn more at easycater.com.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
0: Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one.
3: Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday even
0: if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.